0: Hello everyone and welcome to our next episode of That's So Second Millennium. And my name is Bill Schmidt. I'm a Catholic journalist and uh I'm uh, privileged to be in conversation over these weeks uh with uh Dr. Paul Giesing, a good friend of mine and um, a, a geologist uh, in specialization but uh, broadly interested in matters of uh, science and religion and their compatibility. And uh, we're talking in these past few episodes and a couple more about Paul's recent uh, visit, recent attendance at the uh, uh, Society of Catholic Scientists uh, National Conference in Washington, D.C. recently. He really uh, uh, was in his element, let's say, uh, learning from and interacting with scientists who um, are really interested in this compatibility uh, in various very sophisticated ways that really point toward future understanding of both fields in um, in uh, problem solving uh, for the future. Uh, so, uh, Paul, uh, good to be back with you. By the way, um, yeah, it's a it's, it's a pleasure. To be resuming these uh, uh, podcast episodes. Could you continue now um, with uh, a review of some of the speakers who participated in that uh, uh, Catholic Scientist Conference?
1: Sure, yeah. So for the last, uh, well, I think for the last six weeks, we've been talking about the Society of Catholic Scientists and the conference. And so the last four weeks, we've gone through the first four. Uh, talks at the conference that were given by Ed Fazer, who's a philosopher out at Pasadena City College, who started this off with some uh, philo- philosophical arguments about uh, why it doesn't really, uh, why, why there are philosophical problems with believing that the human mind is explainable and totally materialist, or as the title of the conference put it, physicalist terms. So the title of the conference was The Human Mind and Physicalism. Which of course, you know, if you grant physicalism, then you've sort of walled off faith, and certainly Christian faith. So uh-huh, that's yeah. you know, really the point of the conference is to was to put um, put out a lot of the arguments from you know the theist side, from the, the side of philosophy that admits the possibility and in fact sees reasons to believe that we have to believe you know that they're responsibly, we really do have to believe that there's something going on in the human being specifically, that can't be answered so- solely in terms of uh, what Phaser had called more or less mathematicized matter, you know, matter that's just, there's an electron, it has charge X, it's a position Y, uh, with momentum Z, that uh, that by uh-huh. itself doesn't explain certainly human beings. Um, there's, of course, other arguments for why it doesn't explain the physical universe as a whole, at least its existence today anyway, um, but the point of the conference was to talk about mind. So Phaser led off, and then Stephen Barr, who is the president of the Society, gave a talk about the role of the observer in quantum mechanics, which is a very peculiar uh, aspect of quantum mechanics. Uh, another okay. one of the strange things about quantum mechanics that in the 20th century opened up. you know, Because at the end of the 19th century, the idea that things were, as we've talked about before, at the end of the 19th century, things really looked like uh, a lot of people who were familiar with physics you know, believe that the universe was solely deterministic and believed, I believe it was in the, the terms of the French mathematician Laplace, uh, that, you know, if you knew the position and, mo- and momentum of every particle in the universe at any given point, you would know not only the entire past, but the entire future, because the rules are completely, you know, the rules of physics seem to be completely deterministic. When, some, yeah. when object X strikes object Y with momentum Z at this angle, you know, you know exactly what's going to happen. That's classical physics, and unexpectedly, quantum physics obliterated the foundations of that. And what's fascinating is that a hundred years later, people don't seem to really have caught on to that. Yeah, <laughs> it fact, takes a while. The, the momentum, while. the momentum of atheism has has continued even though its logical foundation is far, 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 far shakier than it was in say eighteen ninety five. Which is a fascinating yeah, aspect we need of human intellectual that. history. Um so Stephen Barr gave a talk about the role of the observer where strange things seem to require <laughs> the the whole idea of the collapse of the wave function, Schrodinger's cat, uh things like that. Uh th- those things seem to require, you know, for physics to work, we have to understand why this happens. And it and it and it's tempting There are certainly reasons to believe that it could be because, you know, it's the physical universe interacting with mind, which is very strange and unexpected. And, and it's, and it's certainly deeply controversial. Um, but Mm. that's what, you know, that's what he, he he gave the talk about. Then we had, uh, Valerio Scarani, who is a physicist out in Singapore. He gave a talk about randomness and essentially what's called Bell's Inequality, which is Mm. a guarantee Mm. of the other and perhaps larger uh, part of quantum physics that leaves you all the room in the world for something non-physical to affect the physical. And, you know, of course breaks open the possibility that, well, there's something, you know, this idea of there being a soul interacting with my body is not ridiculous after all. Um, so that's, Storani gave a talk about that. And so Bell's inequality uh, rules out the experimental evidence to check Bell's inequality has essentially ruled out the possibility that there are what are called hidden variables. So quantum mm. physics assures us that at the level that we can observe above the barriers is uh, present because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, because of the uncertainty mm-hmm. in any kind of experiment, we don't know, um, you know, the exact momentum of our, you know, t- test particles that we're using to interact with quantum systems. So we can't know something's position velocity exactly. A hidden variables theory posits, well, we don't know it, but nevertheless there really are deterministic rules going on below that level. Uh, Einstein believed this. Einstein never accepted uh, the probabilistic interpretation of quantum mechanics. And so Bell's <laughs> inequality and the experiments that have been constructed to test Bell's inequality Show that that's just not, that's just not consistent. The idea of hidden variables can be proven not to be consistent with experimental evidence. There, there really must be either a probabilistic element or you're else, you're confined to some very strange philosophical world like the many worlds hypothesis where every time anything happens to a particle anywhere in the universe, the universe essentially splits and we have two
0: universes
1: that, you know, two or more universes that encompass all the different things that particle could have done in the context of that interaction. Which is, as I as we said in that episode, uh, when we were recording the the audio for that episode, I commented that I think I'm allowed to believe that that's really uh, intellectually unconvincing and, <laughs> if, if nothing else, distasteful. Uh, so that's so that was Sturani, and and actually uh, Valerio Sturani has been kind enough to give me his lecture slides, and I would like to dig into that. Um, hopefully, we'll have the chance, uh, maybe in a few months, to dig into that a little bit deeper, um, because he gave he gave what he called a high school level uh, rundown of the actual algebra that leads you to Bell's inequality, but he went through it really fast. <laughs> so. While I think if you gave my high school self three hours to tangle with the algebra, I probably would have uh, figured it out and, and gotten the gist of what he was talking about. Um, it would be a sure. lot more satisfying to go back and uh, to do, go, dig into the details a little bit more. Um, so potentially we'll, we, may, we may come back to that. Uh, in Very future. good. And then the final one of the episodes that we've already released um, was a neuroscientist named Aaron Schurger. Uh, who talked about the results of an experiment that have been widely interpreted as somehow, quote, proving that there is no such thing as free will. And uh, Aaron Scherger gave a very, very uh, detailed and careful analysis of that's probably not what this experiment proves at all. <laughs> ah. And you know, bringing in details, everything from, you know, uh, a hasty interpretation of what, quote, unquote, free will would look like, uh in the context of the experiments that were done to you know the details of how you're interpreting your data and whether you're throwing out too much information in order to in order to come to a, uh, a overly simplistic interpretation so that was a good mm-hmm. thought uh, and i hope uh i hope that podcast was uh i think i think we were we were pretty uh, succinct about that we stuck to the sometimes we go off on tangents bill but uh, i think that was... <laughs> We kept to the subject pretty closely. That uh-huh. one in particular, if you want a nice, nice, short, concise listen, uh, you may want to go back to that podcast. That was just last no. week, that was episode five. So. Okay. Good. Good. Yeah. Uh, wow. So,
0: in a sense, each of these, each of these uh, talks, uh, could merit, um, a podcast unto itself, a podcast posting uh, by itself, huh? But, uh, uh it's interesting to see uh, how one umbrella theme can bring out so many different areas of specialization and and uh, different points of view but ultimately really challenging ways of thinking about the compatibility of science and and religion and the philosophy of religion uh, the philosophy of science as well as the philosophy of religion
1: yeah certainly yeah and and of course there's also the 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 question of, you know, so this organization was started by physicists slash astronomers and planetary scientists. And so that's still, you know, at the time the conference was being put together and the talks, you know, the people were being rounded up to give talks. Um, The the society has a, you know, a slant in that direction. So there were, there were a number of physicists giving talks um, and uh, not as many neuroscientists as I rather expect they would have wanted. Um, And hopefully in the future, they will get, you know, more. There were certainly a lot of people It looked like they're, you know, from my wandering around the room and looking at people's name tags and uh, the bits of conversation that I, with my tinnitus, could actually catch. Uh, I think there were a number <laughs> of students and younger professionals from neuroscience and biology in attendance, um, but not as many giving talks. Hopefully in the future they will. Yeah.
0: What would you say was the overarching uh, theme uh, among these talks in terms of, was there an optimism or a pessimism, or simply a, a, a good uh, objective question uh, asking uh, about uh, whether we are headed toward um, more more uh, synthesis in in all of these fields, in an understanding of these fields, or uh, is is it more of a, a drift uh, into separate uh, uh, silos simply because the knowledge is is getting more specialized and uh, into um, and into uh, these uh, silos of real deep questioning about things that people took for granted once upon a time.
1: Well, I think the uh, you know the overall topic of the conference being what it was, physicalism in the human mind. Uh, the what you could thread together because people certainly, as we'll talk about today, uh, people certainly. Gave talks on things that were, you know, somewhat divergent. I mean, we we had a lot of people uh, give some talks that weren't you know, a little difficult to, to which is, you know, if you go to con- scientific conferences, it's not that unusual. Um, you have a talk, right. you bring people in, and, and people wander a bit. Um, and you certainly have a tendency to bring bring people in, and you know, if you so as as we'll talk about later, we brought uh, a very a very famous physicist. Uh, Juan Martín Maldacena came in and talked about you know some of his research because if you bring in Juan Martín Maldacena, why wouldn't you want him to talk about his research? Um, a little difficult to directly tie to the theme of the conference, but we appreciated the support you know that, of his coming and you know being present there. Uh, so we uh, as as far as the talks that you could thread together and and relate you you know the ones that could be threaded together related to the topic of the conference and they conveyed. You know, I mean, the sense collectively is that the confidence that, that people express on the materialist side of the intellectual divide that, oh, of course this is the way things are, is right. basically completely justified. Um, you would, you know, you'd have a hard time constructing anything that I would regard as a really, you know, demolishing proof that you must you cannot believe in just in materialism and reductionism, uh, but the but the issues being raised there were, you know, very very troubling for someone trying to adhere to that um, that line of li- line of thought, you know. And regarding that mm-hmm. as an orthodoxy, you you know, you really do kind of have to be sticking your fingers in your ears um, to some degree. Yeah, I mean, which of course in the era of the internet it's easy to do because you can find your own echo chamber for almost anything these days. Um, that's true. But that's, uh, but that, that's, that, that was, you know, I would, I would say that was a clear theme is that, you know, there, there's every reason to be confident that we can go forward and, I mean, that would, to me, to be would be the next step is to do, you know, is, is, is to again approach the world, the intellectual world that we have now with the attitude of an Aquinas or of a um, Albert the Great or even of mm-hmm. a uh, a Roger Bacon and mm-hmm. look at the world and say, you know, we have all of this science. We have some philosophy. We have a lot of philosophy. We have an enormous amount of philosophy overall, and even the small percentage of that can be saved is itself in purpose. Right. Um, right. And and it's time to come. It's, it's time to start working on a new synthesis, because I think Christian theology and even Catholic theology have allowed itself to kind of go off and separate itself completely and get comfortable. I mean, there's a lot to love about, say, Henri de Lubac, but you know, some some of his writing, you know, this this complete, you know, comfort and well, you know, there's there's this you know very solid, obvious, thick brick wall between theology and science and we can just do our thing on one side of the brick wall and let them do their thing on the other side of the brick wall. Yeah. I don't think that's, I don't think that's first of all true. Second of all, I don't think it's convincing. Um, right. I don't think it's any assistance to, you know, the mission of evangelization and bringing, right. the you know, the, there is a world that makes sense, you know, in the context of what we're talking about, the good news is that you know, we can actually believe that the world has a creator who loves us. And there is reason that, you know, there are reasons to believe that. And if we put our, if, if we, you know, bring, bring ourselves to that God and, you know, make the ascent of faith, we're going to get an answer. We're going to get a response. And that's, you know, that's, that's the whole, you know, that's the whole idea of Christianity. I mean, and, and you think yeah. about, the Jesus Christ, you know, Jesus of Nazareth person that we believe in, you know, does he come and say, you know, just believe in me? Or What does he say? He says, well, if you don't believe me, at least believe the works that I'm doing. I mean, right. you know, to be perfectly honest, Jesus of Nazareth was sort of an evidence-based guy. Um, if I wasn't doing the works of my father, you shouldn't believe me, but since I am, uh, the ball is now in your court. And that's, that's a very good point. That's the whole um, message of Christianity, really. And that's, yeah. You know, so so that, that's, I, I don't see, I don't, I, you know, and I, I think I'm in a really small minority at the moment about that, but you know, I don't, I don't think that's, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be done that, you know, and, and, you know, you think about how controversial Thomas Aquinas was in his own time, Right. this this icky pagan Aristotle that, you know, these infidel Muslims um, were talking about. And, and, I mean, you know, at the opening of the 13th century, that was really dangerous stuff. And yet, Aristotle was the best science that the medieval world had to work with. And, you know, Aristotle, as interpreted by Avicenna and Averroes, um, was was the best science that the medieval world had to work with. You had to answer it. And if you with the confidence that, you know, truth is going to in- interlock with truth and we'll we'll sort out the stuff where, you know, Aristotle's inconsistent with the faith and we'll still have a, we'll see if we, we'll see what answer we get at the end of the process. And it turns out to be a logically coherent one. Um, and it has beautiful results and it, you know, makes the world make a great deal more sense. We have the opportunity to do that now with something that's, you know, frankly a lot more potent than Aristotle. That's exciting, yeah. Yeah, there's and there's just and again, that's that was a lot of the burden of this conference was to to lay out the reasons to believe there's no problem with this. Um, There's there's every reason Mm -hmm. that we believe that we can go forward and do that. But it's you know the where we're at is still kind of you know laying the groundwork and as it were, you know, demonstrating the, the, the possibility, you know, existence theorems, there at least could exist solutions. There probably exist solutions where, you know, I can believe that a soul exists and I can believe in physics and I can believe in, you know, the succession of species. Right. The record and, and still come out with, you know, and, and, and believe that scripture is meaningful and still come out with some sort of answer at the end that makes sense and actually hangs together, and not only that, but actually has explanatory power to some extent.
0: That's yeah, and and it's and it's that sense of um, the uh, the uh, potential to find this explanatory power in the synthesis of understanding that that could have a major impact not only in the scientific world. Uh, and the theological world as they're embodied in academia, for instance, or in the church, but also in our educational system where uh, I think students uh, are really, uh, you know, kind of hungry to to find this uh, optimism uh, that, uh, you know, we're headed toward some better understanding of the big questions. Wouldn't you think? Um, uh, I I like to hear about that optimism, Prince. So please, uh, uh, please do go further into any particular bits of, uh, observation and or optimism, um, uh, that, that really uh, struck you from these speakers.
1: Yeah. So let's, uh, as, as I mentioned, um, as I was, you know, fixing up the episode, you know, in, in the sort of liner, Uh, not the liner notes, but the intro to the episode last week, we're going to go a little bit faster through the rest of the speakers. um, Right. Conference. So we'll try, we'll try to wrap them up in the next two episodes here. So the next talk after Aaron Schurter was a philosopher named Peter Kellner, who's at Harvard. And I get the impression that he is actually not uh, a believer and that he is someone That, and I think they did this at the conference last year as well. They deliberately invited someone from sort of outside the fold to give us some, in a way, challenging, uh, interpretations of, of what, you know, what was going on. So he he came in and certainly did talk about an issue that's brought up in the context of human mind and modern physics and mathematics. And he gave something that is not the, what I've seen and actually seen in Barr's own writing, the, the book that uh, we've mentioned a number of times, Modern Physics and Ancient Faith. Um, so it's about yes. something called Gödel's theorem, and my German ancestors are no doubt uh, rolling in their graves at my mispronunciation of that German vowel. But uh, Gödel's <laughs> uh, theorem talks about whether you can reduce human thinking. Well, I mean, it's interpreted this way. So this is the interesting question. So it, it actually talks about whether you can set up a logical system that provides answers to, you know, that judges the truth or falsity of given propositions. And his theorem asserts that you can construct a proposition that any given consistent system is going to be unable to comment upon. And Hmm. not going to be able to determine its truth or falsity, despite the fact that it's, it's posed in the language of the system. Hmm. So That has been widely interpreted in the decades since, even by people uh, of a rather atheistic, um, or at the very least sort of hard agnostic approach to reality, beliefs about reality, um, as saying that you can't reduce the human mind to solely the processes of mathematical physics. Um, Because if, as you know, in, in sort of the way that Facer was talking about, you know you can't just talk about mathematical matter you know working itself out mechanistically and and do an adequate job describing human thought because obviously Kurt Goodall, while an amazing human being, was nevertheless a human being and uh, <laughs> the fact that he can constructs and show us how to construct you know propositions that uh, that you know, transcend any of these finite systems not uh, means that. You know, we must we must not ourselves be one of these finite systems. That's how it's been interpreted. So Kellner hmm. actually went back to partly to Godel's own writing and also to other things, and he's given me his lecture slides as well. And I would love to like just like with Valerio Scarani, I would like to go back, um, hopefully in the future, and maybe recover this ground in more detail. But Kellner's hmm. uh, brought us back to Godel's own interpretation that what guttel thought he proved was that either human mind transcends the, you know, this sort of formal mathematical system or that there are mathematical truths that are even higher than human thought. Mm. And that, that was where I need to go into the details of the, of the symbolic logic that he was presenting again, just like Skorani very fast. Um, because he wanted to get to some points at the end of the talk, and he, didn't, he simply didn't have the time to, to blow it out into a, into a two-hour lecture. Um, right. But by the end of the talk, you know, so now, so for the people in the room, I think for a lot of people in the room, perhaps Barr himself, for example, um, that's kind of challenging to the, you know, sort of hopeful interpretation that Well, Guttle has already, you know, shown us that you know the human mind can't possibly just be a machine because any any machine that can give you any kind of consistent answer um and we have to be a machine that gives some kind of consistent answer because the moment the moment you have any inconsistency in your system, it can give any answer to any question, and we don't think like yeah. that um, that that that's simply not true. we don't actually think like that so we you know we we would like to have that that answer. And so people have taken it that way, and again, there are people like, uh, you know, the, the fair, also fairly famous physicist Roger Penrose, who has a number of books that I really want to tangle with in in the near future, my, my own assigned reading for myself in the next few months. Mm -hmm. Uh, take it that way. He's, he's an example of the sort of person not particular, certainly not religious to my knowledge, but, uh, a person with an atheist or agnostic bent who nevertheless, there must be some sort of, trans-physical aspect to human thought. So what Kellner is saying is that, well, that may be true, or it may be true that what, well, I mean, and it still may be true, and it's an important point, that may may be true regardless of whether Gödel's theorem actually proves that specifically, which is something that, you know, in the context of, uh, you know, polemical arguments back and forth could get lost. Um, Nothing that he said says that that's not actually true. It's just a question of whether Guttel's theorem in particular is a way to demonstrate that it probably is. Um, And, um, you know, myself as a theist, Mm -hmm. I'm leaning back saying, okay, so either you've proven that humanity transcends the machine, transcends, you know, the mechanistic working out of a mathematical algorithm, or you've proven that there are mathematical truths that transcend finite human beings, like, Give me the popcorn. I want more. I'm gonna lean back in my seat and enjoy this. I mean, you know, either way. Uh yeah. it's gonna be great. Uh so so really, I mean, in terms of it being challenging, you know, like, okay, uh we have to we have to accept the responsibility of being as careful as we as the subject needs us to be. Um but that was so that was that was that was what he talked about and it was it was an intriguing like I said, it was extremely intriguing, and a number of people actually, at the end of the talk, asked whether he could, uh, whether he'd be willing to share his slides, and he said that he would, and in fact, I emailed him, and, and uh, he followed through on his promise, so I have them to look at, um, and we will be great. doing some great interest.
0: Great. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So it sounds like
0: so. uh, that the, uh, the dialogues are going to continue uh, way beyond this conference on yeah. the of these points.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's the that's the interesting thing is that is that there are and that's the great thing is that there are people, you know, who really do, you know, people like Peter Kellner and people like Roger Penrose who are people that we can actually, you know, dialogue with and are actually, you know, (laughs) actually give the impression of being caring more about what the truth of the situation actually is rather than, you know, picking the hill to die on of, you know, by God. You know, to to be you know in the more, in the more Dawkins sort of mold of you know of course right. no um, that's not true, yeah. and and you know and fooling themselves into basically taking that as as a given and committing the logical fallacy of you know assuming what it is to be proved. Um, so yeah, yeah uh, that's, so that's that was good. so that was that was really you know that that was an intriguing talk and added a lot to the conference. Um so the next talk was by a guy named Andrew Sikri and I was really looking forward to his talk. Uh and he, <laughs> he transcended my expectations. Um yeah, talked about Nicholas Steno, a 17th century scholar, which in the 17th century you could hardly divide people up into more than like, you know, a natural philosopher. Uh that was basically what you could say. Uh-huh. So among the things that he investigated Actually, he had some thoughts um, about human mind and the brain. but he you know he is most famous today for being among the founding group of geologists, the people the people whose work really by the turn of the eighteenth to the nineteenth century, so you know more than a century after his own lifetime, um really started, you know to be part of what people were using to start studying the earth in earnest. And actually coming to some mm-hmm. sort of systematic conclusions, and uh, and you know, getting somewhere basically. Uh, so, so Andrew Sikri is the world's biggest Nicolas Dino fan. I mean, if he's not the biggest, he is tied. I mean, it is not logically possible to be a bigger uh, Nick Dino <laughs> fan than, than Andrew Sikri is. Uh, so it was it was fabulous. Uh, I have you know, I mean I've taught geology 101, so I've lectured. In fact, and I've taught mineralogy too. So. For, for those of you at home who, who, who Steno is not a household name, um, what did he prove? Well, what, he's, what he laid out was really um, what he's most famous for are these sort of three very common sense principles that are the foundations for what we call stratigraphy. So stratigraphy yeah. is basically the study of how sedimentary rocks are laid out and what that tells you about the order in which they form. So this is something... And this touches on that hot-button issue of evolution again, in this sense. So, you know, so I'm a geologist. And from my corner of the asylum, I would like to have this read into the record. Okay. The only reason we know anything about evolution actually having happened is the fossil record. And geologists are the custodians of the fossil record. We give it Isn't to it? We are the channel through which being itself gives it to you. Our observations are what tells you that there has been some, you know, long stretch of time in the past over which these changes have happened. And I like, at least in my own mind, to divide out the question of evolution into at least two logically separate pieces. So Uh there's evolution in the sense of species can actually change and eventually turn into new species, right? And so Darwin says this happens by, you know, only certain members of a species surviving generation after generation because of environmental pressures, competition, predation, all that stuff. And that, that somehow eventually results in the creation of brand new species. And that, you know, now that we know more about molecular biology and DNA, we recognize the role of mutations in that. That, um, you know, brand new DNA sequences can come out, the vast majority of which turn you into a, an unlivable, you know, member of that species, but a few of which, you know, turn out to be useful. And in fact, a few of which turn out to be so useful that they, you know, dictate the creation of a new species around this functionality. Okay. So that's the mechanism. Yeah. Evolution being that, you know, that the statement that this actually happens. You know, this is a process actually happening to living species. I like to separate that out from the more observational idea that we see in the geologic record a succession of species over time. We can look at, and you know, all the way back to the early 19th century, we can look at strata and we can use Steno's rules to tell us the relative ages of certain strata. And by looking at rocks across, you know, it started with you know, individual countries and, of course, rapidly spread to all of Europe and gradually spread to the entire planet, we can identify certain species are only found at certain, in certain rocks. And as we've gained the ability to actually use radiometric dating to date rocks to actual, you know, ages as opposed to just relative ages, You can see, okay, so this rock in Mexico has this invertebrate shell, and this rock in Italy has this invertebrate shell, they're the same age, and I only across the world find this shell in rocks of this given age range. That's, that's the succession of species. That's different from saying, and the way that this, you know, that this shell is related to shells in earlier strata is this process of evolution, that's a logically separate issue. So geologists provide you, yeah. There's been a succession of species. That's and right. then you that over to the biologists for them to say, all right, and answer the question. Well, how could that possibly have happened? Right. And, and and the different details of how evolution, you know, could have taken us from one species to another. That's you know that's how that's playing out. So that's so that's why stratigraphy is so important because stratigraphy gives us I mean, it, it's so important to that issue. I mean, obviously, it's also just important to the question of how old is the Earth really? Is the Earth actually six thousand years old? Gosh, there's a lot of stuff. That it's it's awful. Um, it's awfully easy once you start taking enough measurements and look, making enough observations to construct a timeline that goes a lot further back than six thousand years. Um, mm-hmm. And that 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 gets you to the argument of, you know, has God in some sense deliberately laid this out to what? Fool us? Is there some other pattern? Is there some other way of interpreting it? Because, um, I mean, that's, you know, so far as I know, the creationist argument is that, well, that's that's simply laid out there to, you know, quote-unquote, test our faith, or something like that, which I don't yeah. find very convincing. Okay. So anyway, but Steno with who, you know, was was nowhere far along enough to start speculating on the overall ages, nevertheless gave us these common sense laws of stratigraphy. So when you're dealing with mostly sedimentary rocks, okay, so this is a rock that has, either the sediment has entered the water column, the ocean probably, and settled out, or it um, it is actually chemically precipitated out of the ocean water, or potentially it could be, you know, derived from volcanic ash that's also just laid out, you know, in a layer. So if you have, if you have, if you grant that original idea that rocks are laid out in layers, you get Steno's laws. So the principle of superposition. Actually, the easier mm-hmm. one to start with is the principle of original horizontality. Okay, you see rocks, and if you follow them around, say, in the Alps for long enough, you'll find stretches where, oh, rocks are, you know, all in this given sequence. Um, and if they're out of sequence, I can often find a break or a fold and, and realize that, oh, that's what put them out of sequence. So if I look at places that look like they've been less disturbed, I see, you know, I see evidence to believe that rocks were originally laid out in broad horizontal layers. And that, of course, leads to the idea of superposition. And if these layers haven't been disturbed, the younger rock is on top of the older rock. And it's just kind of common sense. But Steno was was the person who, and he wasn't even the absolute first to talk about this, but he was a person who put it in a systematic order and bequeathed it to posterity. And so his name has been attached to it. And then there's the final principle, the principle of inclusions, which helps us with both sedimentary rocks and now starting to talk more about igneous rocks, so rocks that form from, you know, magma or lava that's, you know, magma that's simply been erupted onto the surface. So the principle of inclusion says that whatever is included in another rock, the inclusion must be older. And that's, it's, it's also related to the, you know, the law of cross-cutting relationships. Something that cr- cuts through something, the cutter must be younger than the cuttee, which again, yeah. all of these things are sort of logical. So if you have a, you know, a layer of granite in the record, And then you have a sandstone on top of it. And you see fist-sized chunks of granite at the bottom of the sandstone, embedded in the sandstone. You sort of look at that and say, huh, I think, (laughs) based on the principle of inclusion, that the sandstone is younger. The granite was out there being eroded, and then the ocean buried it, you know, buried the granite with a pile of sand, and so those boulders at the bottom are by the principle of inclusions, must that that means the granite must be older than the sandstone. And that's an trivial observation because you could go a thousand miles west and see a granite and a sandstone that you might not be sure aren't the same units. But in this case, you look at the bottom of the sandstone layer and instead of chunks of granite being buried in the sandstone here and there, what you see Mm -hmm. instead Is that the sandstone changes color and the grain size gets bigger and just generally a bunch of things that a geologist would scratch his head at and say that sandstone got really hot at the bottom. Well, that's a principle of that, that means that the granite has probably cut off, you know, and then probably consumed the bottom of the sandstone layer and the granite is actually younger than the sandstone because the sandstone existed, then the granite intruded and baked the, the sandstone next to it, and therefore, in this case, you're looking at something where the age relationship, the relative age relationship, is reversed. That sort of common yes. sense thing—it's—it's it's foundational. It's you know, any type of field geology, you know, just absolutely depends on these for its, you know, I mean, it's—it's it's, it's practically the laws of, you know, they're—they're the, the, they're the equivalent of the laws of, you know, logic, you know, the the, the laws of syllogisms and logic. They're yeah. just they're just absolutely foundational for arithmetic in mathematics. So and Steno is the one who put those together. Steno is also responsible for um, the first really useful observation about crystals, which is that crystals that seem to be the same stuff chemically, the same stuff. Which of course chemistry was just barely beginning in the 17th century too. Um, mm-hmm. He observed that if you have two quartz crystals, despite the fact that quartz crystals, some of them are long and skinny, some of them are short and fat, uh, they're different colors, but nevertheless, if you measure the angles between all the different sets of faces, you'll find a common set of numbers. Any quartz crystal that's been allowed to grow without constraints will have the same set of angles between the faces, despite the fact that some of the faces, you know, will be big on some crystals and small on others. Um, So that was basically the very beginning of what we call crystallography, which, of course, now that we can do X-ray diffraction and all sorts of other uh, experiments of the atomic scale, we can actually see how the the stacking of atoms inside a crystal leads to these shapes that we see in the macroscopic, you know, in the the naked eye ability to see the crystals. Oh, they assume these shapes because of the stacking of atoms inside them. But to even do mm. that experiment, you have to know that, you know, this this crystal and this crystal and this crystal all belong to the same mineral. And early on, this was one of the first rules he could use to make that judgment, was this law of constant interfacial angles. So he's, mm. you could do this in the 17th century. You could be, you know, you could, you could found basically all of <laughs> the subdivisions of some huge branch of science. Because back then it just hadn't been done yet, right? And that's right. the fascinating thing right. was that's why we're at the uh, Cap- Society of Catholic Scientists yeah. is that Nicholas Steno is Father Nicholas Steno. He was oh, a. I forget. If he was a. Um, I don't remember if he was simply a diocesan priest or if he was a member of a particular religious order. I think I'd remember if he was a Dominican specifically. I don't believe he was. Um, uh-huh. You know, so, and so, you know, talking about people at the foundation of science, you know, this, the, the black legend that, you know, well, the Galileo affair proves that the church and the Catholic Church in particular is opposed to science and yeah. is where the Catholic Church was in charge, were hostile to the development of science and, you know, the people you know, realized from early on that they had to free themselves from the shackles of Christianity and all of that dogma and crap in order to do science, it's it's, it's, it's malarkey and always has been. Yeah. But but that's an attractive story to people who, you know, for whatever reason have, you know, hostility to to religion. And, you know, and that's not... And that's, that's another story for another time about all the, the incidents that lead people in that direction. Why people
0: yeah.
1: have gone that direction. Um, and certainly in a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, there is some particular story, you know, someone saying and or doing something so scandalous that, you know, that, that was, that was that person's point of departure and they haven't taken religion seriously ever since. Right, right. Which is another sort of second millennium thing that we would like to leave in the past, to the degree. That we possibly
0: yeah. Can. Yeah. Oh, I like the way that you've really incorporated uh, in my own mind um, some of the uh, some of the uh, really uh, advanced and uh, relatively uh, unknown insights uh, that uh, come forth from these folks and from this conference. With some of the things that I think our listeners are particularly familiar with and see at the crux of the matter uh, in our pursuit of uh, the uh, compatibility of science and religion, these references to to religion, uh, uh, to uh, the Galileo uh, issues, and and uh, also bringing in how uh, your own field of uh, geology is uh, one among many different fields that. Uh, uh, have a real powerful uh, role in um, in uh, helping to find a synthesis uh, uh that that can that can point us forward uh shall we end this uh, podcast uh, uh here and um and uh, start with a new episode where we uh, we take this uh, drama even uh one step further. Uh, I, I, it sounds like there's still a lot more to be said uh, about the conference and its participants.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think this would be, you know, this this can be our our hopefully final breaking point, and then in episode 19 we will go on to discuss the rest of the speakers, at least at a first cut, because you know these people are pretty, they're doing pretty interesting work, and uh, we'll oh, we'll, God, yeah. we'll want to come back to a lot of them um, as the podcast goes on. But for today, yeah, that's a good place to stop.